Well, this week I thought about reaching out to uh, the Hallmark Company, knowing what was coming this weekend, and offering to them a suggestion for a new holiday slogan. Nothing says Valentine's Day like the seven bowls of wrath. But I figured I wouldn't waste my time doing that. It wouldn't be a point of real common interest, I guess, don't you think? But still, nevertheless, on this Sunday in particular, this Sunday of commercialized true love in our culture, we as a church get to see something that's great and amazing in Scripture, even if it seems controversial to us. It's a picture of God's great love, actually, for His creation and for the truth of His righteousness that it reflects in Revelation 15 and 16. And if you're visiting with us this morning, please understand that we're in the middle of a a series on the book of Revelation, and we've been in the midst of this for some time now, and we just happen to be right now in the middle of a, a very dark and sticky, even controversial part of the book. Last week and this week and the next couple of weeks even, and that's just where we are. So understand that, and and don't let this be the only Sunday you come to join us. Understand that uh, there's a bigger picture involved here, but this is an important one. For you young Christians, as I read this passage that's there on page 7 of your bulletin, you're going to hear a reference to a very famous Old Testament story. You young Christians, see if you can tell which story that is. I bet you know already from readings you've already heard. And why do you think it's here? Why do you think it's referenced here in Revelation 15? This is Revelation 15, beginning in verse 1. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, And also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name, standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name, For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. After this I looked, and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened. And out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues, clothed in pure, bright linen, with golden sashes around their chests. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God, who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from His power. And no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Father, we pray that you would help us. We know that we need it because a picture like this to us is perplexing. 
And we don't understand, Lord, our minds and our hearts are not big enough, they're not deep enough, they're not strong enough to grasp all that you have to show us. And so we pray that you would give us your spirit, give us humble hearts and and pliable minds that might be shaped by your working in us through your word, and increase our faith to believe you. We pray you would do this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. You may be seated. Earlier this week, a friend of mine showed me a video of a high school basketball game. The home team was trailing by a couple of points, and the last seconds of the game were ticking off the clock as the home team eagerly and desperately even passed the ball back and forth among the teammates trying for one last shot. Finally, with seconds left on the clock, the ball landed in the hands of the senior shooting guard who launched a three-pointer, almost a mid-court shot, high-arching shot in slow motion in the video, and it hit nothing but net. And the crowd cheered and crashed down onto the court to celebrate at the back of the baseline with the hero who won the game. It's a a moment that many of us dream of, isn't it? We all long for that kind of moment in which the heat reveals the heart, or at least a hot shooting hand. It's a metaphor that, that we love because it rings so true in our daily lives. I mean, even on Valentine's Day, we know that the heat of circumstances applied to any marriage will reveal the heart of that marriage, won't it? It will reveal whether it's only hallmark Valentine's love or if it's something deeper, something significant, redemptive even, that will last and endure the difficulties of the heat of ordinary life. It's a metaphor that rings true in our daily lives because it's born out of redemptive history. In Jeremiah 17, the prophet is speaking to God's people, Judah, who remain not yet exiled because of their rebellion. And the Lord gives to them a warning. And this is what he says to them. He says, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. He's like a shrub in the desert. He dwells in the parched places of the wild salt land. But blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He's like a tree planted by streams of water. Sounds like a psalm, doesn't it? He does not fear when heat comes, for his leaves remain green in the year of drought. The heat reveals the heart. Now, so far in the book of Revelation, as we've made our way through now 16, almost chapters of this book, we keep seeing these sequences of seven, don't we? If you remember, if you look back on it with me, you can remember some of these It's a pattern that continues to happen. Heaven is opened to John, and he sees a vision of seven. So remember, he saw the glorified Christ walking among the seven lampstands and dictating letters to the seven churches. And then heaven was opened again to John more clearly, and he saw into the throne room of God. And you remember, 
what he saw there, a sea of glass in front of the throne. And he saw the lamb coming to the throne and taking a a scroll from the hand of the Father, a scroll with seven seals that revealed the suffering of the world. Then again, heaven was open to John, and what did he see? He saw seven angels who had seven trumpets sounding out warnings to the world. And then again, heaven was open to John, and he saw there a great sign. We spent Christmas and the last weeks of January in this particular sign. Some would call them, in chapters 12, 13, and 14, seven great histories of redemption. The woman who represents the church and the dragon pursuing her and her offspring to kill and to destroy them, seeking out, as he's defeated by the angels, help from the sea beast and the earth beast, the worldly government and worldly religion to come to his aid. And the stories that followed last week that we saw of the lamb and his his people, the church on Mount Zion, and the angels proclaiming their messages and the finality of the grapes of wrath being pressed out as God makes final judgment. The the seven histories. Each of these visions that John sees in heaven, we've seen, run parallel with each other. They're not sequential chronological steps that come sometime in the future. They all are contemporary, even to the first century. And they all are future, looking into years yet to come, even for you and for me. These visions run parallel with each other in those ways, and yet they each also progress from each other. They're all headed towards the finality of some great ends. And now the heat increases, and seven angels with seven plagues, John sees, seven plagues which are, He says, the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. Now, the book of Revelation is not finished. There's still much business to attend to, and we will see those in weeks to come. But with these seven angels and their metaphorical pouring out of these seven plagues, God's judgment against rebellion reaches a certain conclusion. The heat of redemptive history is turned up high here, and it reveals important truths. In the praising song of the redeemed, which you see, it reveals life. Okay, so the the scene begins to shift from that vision of chapters 12, 13, and 14 here as we enter into chapter 15. And John saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues. But... As that scene begins to open for us, it's overlapped slightly by a trailing conclusion from the previous scene. Think about it like this. Remember, the dragon and his allies pursuing the woman and her offspring, the church. Satan and his counterfeit trinity, worldly government and worldly religion that he's gathered together to help him to destroy the offspring of the woman, the church. They're pursuing, and yet they fall short again and again and again. Even as their number is 666, they fall short in their efforts and they fall short in the promises that they make to those who would be deceived by them. 
And that's what they're doing. And then John sees these angels with their messages of gospel and fallen is Babylon and a warning to those who would be deceived. And then he sees the picture of the judgment coming and the grapes of wrath being pressed out. And in the midst of all that is the Lamb on Mount Zion with the redeemed 144,000, the perfect number of all the countless host of God's people, the church, singing. Blameless they are because God has brought deliverance. And as the seven angels now step onto the stage, John sees something else. Something that ought to draw your mind back to the fourth chapter of the book of Revelation. And then from there, draw your mind way back to the book of Exodus. This is what you should think of as it appeared to be a sea of glass, what he saw here, mingled with fire this time, but a sea of glass nevertheless. And the redeemed are standing beside it and they're singing a version of a song that had been sung before. The song of Moses the servant of God. So, the Egyptian army, you know the story, was pursuing hard. They were coming strong after 400 years. Can you imagine that? 400 years of this particular family, a people group as it were, now after so many generations, after 400 years of they having been exclusively and completely enslaved in Egypt. Finally, now deliverance had come. The plagues of God had come through the hand of Moses against the enemy, and finally they're on their way, but now they're trapped between the sea on one side and warring Egyptians on the other. And the Israelites were afraid. If you remember that story from back in Exodus, they were afraid. The heat of the moment revealed what was in their hearts, and what was in their hearts was fear, great fear. I mean, we can appreciate that, can't we? If we can even imagine being in that circumstance, we'd be afraid too, I expect. But there, Moses replies to their fear with something far more profound, I expect, than even he could have known of what he was saying at the time. He said to them these words, The Lord will fight for you. You only have to be silent. Very prophetic words. In fact, words that are, I think, a historical metaphor for our salvation today. A man came to Jesus and asked him, what what is the work that God requires of me? And do you know his answer? The work that God requires is that you believe in the one that he sent. In other words, be quiet and believe in the one that he sent because that one that he sent is life. And as Israel watched in silence back on the shores of the sea, what did the Lord do? By the hand of Moses, he pressed the waters back all night long so thoroughly and completely that the people walked across on dry ground. It wasn't even muddy. It was dry ground that they walked across on. And the next morning, they stood beside the sea and they sang. Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God Almighty. N.T. Wright is a theologian I've mentioned to you before who has written lots of books that are very worth reading. And one of them, he said something 
very simple and very profound. He said, Christianity is about something that happened. That seems kind of obvious, doesn't it? But we forget. We forget that that's what Christianity is. It's about something that happened in time and space history. It's not about a moral teaching. It's not about guidelines for behavior. It's not even about principled examples to follow. I can't do what Jesus did any more than I can watch the NBA slam dunk contest and then go out in my driveway and try to repeat what they did. That's not going to happen. Christianity is rather about something that happened in history. God came and rescued and restored life to the dead. And as these angels step onto the stage, John goes back to the edge of the sea where the people of God, singing the praise of God, had found deliverance and life. The Israelites had known heat. I mean, you can think back on the story. They had known the heat of endless days of labor in Egypt. They'd known the heat of trying to make bricks without straw, of having to gather their own. They'd known the heat of breathing the dust of a country that was not their own. They'd known the heat of physical discomfort and weakness, of derision and persecution. In different ways, they had known the same heat that we, as the church, know now, if we're able to see it, if we're able to feel it and recognize it, if, in fact, we are in this world, but not of this world. Do you feel the heat? Do you feel it in nations being torn apart by civil war all around the globe? Do you feel it even on a morning when you see the headline of a Supreme Court justice unexpectedly died, and now the forces of either side are gathering momentum, unconcerned with his funeral and respecting his life, but gathering momentum in order to claim their stake on how they will shape things that ought to be because they know someone else is going to shape it differently than they want. Do you feel the heat of that? Do you feel the heat of neighborhoods on the brink with social strife? Do you feel the heat of marriages that are taped together with Valentine's Day cards? Do you feel the heat of your own soul? And the temptations that you know you love and yet will fail you, falling short again and again and again. The heat of redemptive history reveals what's true. And is it revealing in you life that comes from faith? To the Romans, Paul was very clear when he said it this way. He said, we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. And each of us will give an account. Until then, be quiet and believe in the one that he sent. In chapter 16, then John hears a loud voice that calls out, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. And with what follows, in the cursing tongue of the deceived, the heat reveals death. The first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth and 
harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became like the blood of a corpse, and every living thing died that was in the sea. The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and it was allowed to scorch people with fire, and they cursed the name of God, and they did not repent and give him glory. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven. They did not repent of their deeds. That's the ugly picture of the bowls of wrath coming forth. And you have to recognize the similarities there on a couple of fronts. For one, it's very similar to what happened in Egypt, isn't it? This is the the New Testament picture of the Old Testament reality of what had already taken place. The sores and the blood and the darkness, the plagues of Egypt on a much grander scale, God is now forcing the hand of his enemy saying, let my people go. But even more than that, only this time it's you and all your minions get your hands off of my creation. This is the judgment that's coming with this. It's similar to what happened in Egypt. It's also similar to what happened with the trumpets earlier in the book of Revelation. If you remember the trumpet soundings of warnings to the world. There the earth and the sea and the rivers and the sky were stricken all in their own turn. Only now the difference is that the effect is not partial. Do you remember with the trumpets? A third of the earth was burned up. A third of the water turned into blood and so on. Now it's all of it. All of the water turned to blood. Everything in the sea died. There's a a sense of progress here. It's no longer partial. It's whole. And it's the exodus all over again, but this time it's complete. Christianity is about something that happened. So, How is this going to happen exactly? That's maybe the question on our minds of wondering and projecting out to the future. How are we going to see this happen? What what exactly is going to happen? Well, we don't know. We have to acknowledge we don't know exactly because this is steeped in the symbolism of Old Testament historical events. And it's framed in the artistry of New Testament prophetic visions And it's aimed at the very real drudgery of ordinary, real life, and real people. There's no way for us to know exactly how the heat of final judgment will come except for this. It will come. It will come and it will reveal death in the cursing tongues of those who are deceived. Did you hear what they said as these things unfolded? John and his vision makes it very clear. They cursed the name of God. They did not repent. They cursed the name of God and they did not repent. It's a very hard scene for us to imagine. As we saw last week, it should be. It should make us kind of squirm and make us a little bit uncomfortable with the idea of You know, if you went to your neighbor next door to open the Bible to them, this maybe is not the first place you would turn, I would suggest. 
And so it makes us a little bit uncomfortable, but our discomfort should not come because of the judgment of God. It should come, rather, because of the refusal of men and women to let go of the idols that are drowning them. Even these, the deceived ones, had known heat. I mean, after all, Christians and non-Christians alike live in the same world. We all experience the same elements of the broken, fallen world in which we live. We have the same exposures to it all. We all know the dilemmas of right versus wrong. Every person wrestles with that. Every person experiences injustice and physical weakness, disease and darkness. If you can imagine it, though, even unbelievers experience something a little bit different sometimes. They experience the lack of love from immature Christians who take the place of judgment themselves, pointing fingers at those who are destroying the world as we like it to be. They experienced that kind of heat, even. They experienced all the same things, but though they knew of God, they did not honor Him as God. But they became foolish in their thinking, and their hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and they chose death. Last week, we thought of a couple of the the common objections that people have in thinking about judgment and hell and the great offense that that is to our sensibilities so often as we think of it. One of those being, how could God, if he actually is a God of love, how could God even allow a place like hell to exist? Well, you have to understand some of the the assumptions of a question like that. For one, we assume that there's a geography of hell. The Bible doesn't really give us a geography of hell. We, We tend to think in terms of going down, that it's somewhere down in the earth. If you took a great adventure down to the center of the earth, somehow you'd pass through hell on your way. That's just not the case. All we have really are metaphors and, and in our own minds and hearts, false caricatures of what hell is. It's somewhere down there where God sends otherwise decent people who don't really want to go there. That's what we assume about it. And that's why we ask the question, why would God even let hell exist? And we betray our false assumptions because it's simply not true. You see it here in this passage and in last week's as well. To the very end, they actually curse his name. Because what they want is just more and more and more of themselves. And that's what God gives them. C.S. Lewis writes about it this way. He, He actually takes the Lord's Prayer in which we pray to the Lord, Thy will be done. And he says, at some point in the future the Lord will take that prayer and turn it back to those who continually reject and refuse His offer of grace. And He will say to them, Thy will be done. Take it as you desire it. I'm going to give you more and more and more of what you want. And off they go with just what they've always desired. They did not repent. There's a healthy exhortation in this to us to think about it's it's not just a frightening picture of what's yet to come it's something helpful to us because Paul wrote to the Corinthian church 
many helpful words. He explains to them that he laid the foundation of the gospel in their hearts. He laid the foundation for them, which is Jesus Christ. And they now are building on that foundation. And he explains to them, he says, whatever you build on that foundation, each one's work will be made known for the last day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each has done. With the gospel, you are building life on that foundation. Even as the heat reveals death in many. But remember, Christianity is something that happens. Something that exists in history and therefore it has an end. And so in the finishing work of God, the heat reveals holiness. God had felt the heat too, you know, not in the same way as we do. It doesn't affect him being the sovereign God of all of creation. It doesn't affect him like it affects us. But God had felt and known and seen the heat of identity theft. Of all of us who have known identity theft, God knows identity theft. We've seen it in these passages previous, the counterfeit trinity that steals his identity, that seeks to take his place and to present itself to us in the world as though it were God. God has felt the heat of rebellion against him, and that heat reveals his holiness. The redeemed sing of it in verse 4, "...who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name?" For you alone are holy. And even the angel receiving the bowls that come on the water, turning it to blood, call out, Just are you a holy one who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. O holy one, the one who is and who was, the one who is eternal, God who lives forever and ever, the only one who existed before the creation of the world who is altogether distinct from all else. In other words, holy. And in that holiness, he will finish the work of redemption. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw, coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet, Three unclean spirits like frogs, for they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. And they assemble them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. About 500 years before Christ was born, the Persians diverted the Euphrates River in order to march into Babylon on a dried-up riverbed. A king from the east, Cyrus, came and probably unwittingly judged Babylon in a foreshadowing of a much greater event that will take place on a global scale. It's a snapshot of a much greater history. In a similar way to the Israelites crossing on dry ground, even as God judged the enemy, Egypt at that point in history, 
And so now this thing called Christianity continues to happen in real history. But the geography is not as clear as many Christians want for it to be. You know, Armageddon, that's another one of those things along with 666 that Christians make much about trying to figure out and decipher the symbols and figure out the riddles and claim it and place it on the spot on the globe. We want to know where this is going to happen. Armageddon. Well, it's a, it's a Hebrew word. It's a, a place. Megiddo was a, an ancient city in the Middle East. An ancient city next to a large plain where armies could and did gather for war. And it's a suitable symbol for a spiritual reality, but with no real definite geography, I would suggest to you. And so the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne, saying, It is done. It is finished. One of you told me this week about your experience with jury duty and how after a few days of complex case presentations and evidence and testimony and deliberation as a jury, the jury ended up hung 11 to 1 and no resolution at all, a mistrial. Perhaps it'll be tried again in the future. A few days wasted, no justice found. There will be no hung juries at the end of history. There will be none because God is utterly committed to set the world right again. In fact, judgment is the sovereign declaration that this is good and true and right and should be vindicated, and this is evil and wrong and false and should be condemned. That's what judgment ultimately is, and it is, if you even think about it for a moment, completely necessary. It's a necessary element of the world in which we live, in which you don't have to be a Christian to recognize the conflict of the world, the strife and the tension and the anger, the ferocity of different ways in the world. Ultimately, judgment will come. It's inevitable. The question is, who will do it? Will men and women, by democratic votes? No way. Only the holy God who created all things ultimately can bring judgment and set things right. Quickly, two applications for all this for us to think of as we see this picture. A couple of things that matter to us. For one, we have to realize that heat or hardship always elicits a response. It always does. You know it by your own experience that the heat of your own life, whatever it is, brings about a response in you. It will drive a person to God or it will drive a person away from God. It reveals the heart. Your circumstances don't cause you to sin. Do you know that? They never do and they never will. They only reveal what's already there. They only give you opportunity to see inside of your heart to recognize what's actually there. So the question for you is, do you see life or do you see death? And the other thing is this. There's a word to the saints given as Armageddon unfolds and gathers here in the sixth 
angel's bowl. And that word from Jesus is this. Behold, I am coming like a thief. So blessed is the one who stays awake. That's an idea we've heard in the parable, isn't it? That's something that we know of as Jesus told his disciples. You don't know when I'm coming. I will come again and I will come like a thief in the night. You don't know when it will be, whether you're a Christian or not. You don't know. You never can pin me down for that. I will come as a thief. So blessed is the one who stays awake. What you've built on the foundation that is Christ, what you're building now, will be revealed by fire, and you don't know when. But you do know there will be no hung jury. You do know that all that's broken and twisted will be set straight. You do know that all that's unjust and stolen will be ultimately made right. The heat will reveal every heart. And our holy God will call it finished in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Oh Lord, we pray that you would enable us to see these things and understand. Give us faith, Lord, to believe and to recognize that your ways are far beyond what we ever possibly could do or fathom even. And so as you promised to bring judgment, Would you shape our hearts and our minds to understand that that is not something in the way of what we would interpret it in our own American and ultra-sensitive minds and hearts, but it is you, the Creator, the only holy God who made all things, who in your justice refuses to leave things broken. And you will in the end come and redeem and restore and call evil evil and call good good for the glory of your name and for the good of your people, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.